This is a story about a detective. She's a cold case forensics expert. But this isn't just a cold case crime-solving story. This story begins with an active crime scene, and our detective has to draw her weapon and fire for the very first time. She ends up taking a man's life to save another man's life. Then the saved man disappears from the scene, and she's drawn to him to try to find answers. What she finds is a very dangerous game. We're talking about the new thriller, What Remains, with author Wendy Walker. You're going to hear how excited she gets talking about the science of memory and writing about trauma recovery. I love how she balances her research into psychology and backstories for her characters with this urgent, nail-biting suspense. You're also going to hear her thoughts about her narrators, Gabra Zachman and Peter Ganim, who dramatically and subtly deliver the clues in the audiobook for what remains. That's all coming up on this Desideratum. A Desideratum is an essential thing. And in this podcast, we're going to talk to authors and narrators about how storytelling is an essential thing, both the act of telling and the journey of listening. Supporting this episode with Wendy Walker is Blackstone Publishing. Blackstone is giving you a discount code for 50% off the audiobook for what remains. Be ready for the code after our chat with Wendy Walker. Another big thank you to Positron. They are a subscription service for audio storytellers like me. I use their audiobook prep and proofing and collaboration tools. They make working together on a project efficient and seamless and even fun. You can sign up for a free demo of their system at Positron.com. The book was actually inspired by uh, a real event that I heard on the news. It was a shooting in Boulder, Colorado. And the piece of news that I heard while I was driving around doing errands uh, were interviews from people who had come out of the store unharmed, um, but had been inside. And they didn't really know what had gone on, except that there was a shooting. And their stories, their voices were so poignant and moving. And um, they stayed with me. And of course, they disappeared from the news. I was left wondering what happens to them. And so I started researching um, that kind of trauma and the trauma recovery. And that is where the book started. And so that is where the book starts in that store, because that is the beginning of everything. My vision is sharp and focused as I walk out of the aisle and down the hall toward the cries. I disregard the vacuum cleaners and toilet paper, the floor tiles, and the faces of people. So many people frozen in place, crouched into little balls trying to disappear as I move through the vast space. 
And that's what you do in this first scene. You put us with Elise. We are in the store. And there's this, um, you do this wonderful thing with how kind of memory works in immediate experience. My first thriller, All Is Not Forgotten, was about memory science. I learned a lot about memory. And in subsequent books and subsequent research, I've learned so much about how these types of experiences are remembered and stored in our minds and our brains. And when you're in a situation of acute trauma like that, the brain chemicals, there's actually a physiological um, explanation for why our memories are compromised. Physiologically, the chemicals in our brain have shifted to fight or flight. And basically what our brains are making us do is is not think, not process, not consider what the options are for in the long term or anything like that. The only concern that our brains are making us have is how to stay safe, whether to flee, freeze, or fight. And as a result, the chemicals that are needed, there are specific chemicals that are needed to actually store memory, which is why drugs like roofie and roofies and and even excessive alcohol can block memory. You can have, you know, be actually prevents your memory from being stored in a moment from working yeah it's because of the chemicals they have been they have been interrupted these proteins that you need to for the synapses in the brain to communicate between the two between neurons and so it, that's a really you know sciencey geeky explanation but it's actually <laughs> true so, when, so Elise when she is in this trauma and she takes a man's life to save another she becomes so desperate to remember that split second when she pulled the trigger because she can't see it. She can't see whether the man who was in the line of fire had made it to safety or not. And even though that may not matter because there was a man with a gun firing it in the department store and she had she was perfectly justified as a, as a police officer to, you know, to try to stop him. Um but for her own conscience, because she's not an active duty cop. I mean, she she works cold cases. She's never drawn her weapon, let alone fired it. And so for her, it's just so important for her to remember and she can't. So then that's why she begins her search for this man whose life she saved and who disappears from the scene um, and why she's so vulnerable to him when he first finds her and invites her to, uh, to have a conversation. And that's, you know, how he infiltrates her life. Yes. I love the sciencey nerdy explanation for some of that. And that gets to this idea of uncertainty, right? Like what you just talked about is that she's not clear. She's not certain. And certainty is really important to this character. We learn about her, even in that first chapter, how much certainty matters to her. And this uncertainty then plays on her anxiety. Yes. Uncertainty, I think I wrote down, um, at one point she's talking to a psychiatrist about the experience and he tells her, I'm afraid you will never have what you want. Uncertainty is inherent in the human experience. Yes, and it is. And there's so many layers um, of psychology in the book. And it's always a challenge for me because I would geek out on them for pages and pages. But of course, I'm trying to please readers who really don't want all of that and really prefer to just have, you know, have the plot move along. So I'm always balancing that. But yeah, so there, there is this dynamic within every human being that we know, right, what the end is. We know that we're not going to live forever. And so but we don't know how. 
it's going to happen. We don't know what will happen to the people we love. We are so vulnerable as human beings. We live with uncertainty every day of the most profound aspects of our lives. And so what we learn to do is to put those aside and put them in the back of our mind so that we can get up and go through life and enjoy life and be motivated to care about what happens in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, what happens today, our jobs, going to the grocery store, all of these things we can only do by putting that uncertainty aside. But when you when you suffer an acute trauma like this, what it signals to your brain is not that this is something, this uncertainty is something that could happen in the future and it, you know nothing to worry about right now, nothing to think about right now. It basically sends a signal saying, no, no, you need to pay attention now. You need to pull this from the back of your mind because it did just happen. Something terrible did just happen. And so there's that uncertainty for her conscience, but then there's also this traumatic uh, the the impact of the trauma, which is that she's in this fight or flight mode and she can't get herself down from it and get herself away from it. So she's a mess. She's kind of a mess, reeling with guilt and trauma and you know. Yes, but I think that the way, without being too sciencey about how all that mess happens, I think we really, um, as a reader, you're just really with her, and it makes a lot of sense what she's going through. So I felt like uncertainty was a big theme. I also felt like lies or deceit were a big theme. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes with herself, sometimes in her significant relationships, but it's just like a coping mechanism. But then you also like you write these great things about how lies and deceit are sort of um, what's it's what we do. Yeah. I think you like make a reference to Santa Claus or a way that cops solve a crime or something. And I was like, oh, it is. It's everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the important parts of the book is why, why she feels so isolated that she can't um, bring her husband and her partner into um, what she's going through with, with this man whose life she saved, who becomes obsessed with her and infiltrates her life. And yeah. Um, is everyone she loves in danger. And there are, there are multiple reasons. The first one, obviously, is that she she is in this fight or flight mode. So she's not thinking rationally. Um, but the second, I think, to your to what you're saying about secrets is that we all in our relationships, you know, we choose what to show different people. Yeah. It, based on what we know they like about us or what we sort of sense just intuitively on a subconscious level, what they're able to handle. And we all have people that will tell certain stories to and others that were like, eh, I don't need to share that story with that person because we just know what is going to create the clearest path to a good relationship with that person, whether it's at work or in romantic relationship or a friendship or even with our children. And so, yeah, deception is part of the human experience. And for the most part, it's not that you know, significant, the things that we hide from others Mm -hmm. are not necessarily what define us, but sometimes they are. And in this case, what she is withholding from those around her is how she feels about what happened in that store, because everyone is hailing her a hero. Her husband just wants her to embrace that and to move on and accept her award. And yeah, but there's this fear in, in her. And I think it's within all of us who keep something really important from others is that we feel like 
we're afraid they won't love us. Uh, if we show them that peace, and especially when it's a drastic change like this, and that's what I was thinking about these, these survivors of the store in Boulder was, you know, everyone in their lives is probably expecting them to have gratitude that they nothing happened to them and to maybe see life in a brighter way and and be more appreciative of, of everything and everyone in their lives. And, you know, the same way, like if we, I don't know, sometimes we have like a near miss when we're driving, right? We, someone goes through a red light and we slam on our brakes and we have a moment like, whoa, close call. And it's not terrorizing, but it's, you know, it shocks us a little bit like, okay, I'm, you know, be grateful for things and, you know, be grateful nothing worse happened. But in this case, it's so profound. It's so shocking that I don't think people can really get to that place of just feeling gratitude and even, you know, more exuberance towards life before they go through all the processing to put, to put that worry back on in the back of their minds. Yeah. I love the way you just described that because really we're talking about like, she can't see the silver lining because she's deep, deep, deep in the cloud. Right. Deep in it. She is in it. She's still in that store and everyone around her is like, okay, we're moving on. And she is still in that store. She is still feeling what she felt in that store. It has not moved through her. So yeah, it's, um, I really wanted to write about that. And the rest of the story is really, really a vehicle to explore um, the impact of trauma. It is, but you touch on so many different things. Like even what you just said about how we show different faces to different people in our lives, like you have her, she's a cop and she's a mother and she's a wife and she's a partner. She's, and you know, we have all of these different um, roles that we play. And then she also, she becomes a victim. She's also then an assailant. Yes. And I think you're just playing with the, with the complexity of all of those roles that we're that we're all like, I think that's the part of it that was very relatable, even though we're talking about this enormous thriller story, but it's, it's very, um, there's a lot of empathy there. Yeah. I mean, I really try very hard in my books to, um, to create characters who are compromised or flawed and to try to build understanding for them and to, so that readers will have empathy for them. Maybe they don't really love them or like them or want to go, you know, have a cocktail with them or whatever, but, (laughs) but to see, see what they're going through as something in the human experience that people do go through and to, to have a sort of really be able to relate to it and hopefully find it interesting. And, um, and it's so engaging that they want to, to go on this journey with the character. Yeah. And also just I think it's very thought provoking. I love any storyline and it can be within any genre where ultimately you, it fosters self-reflection in some way. But yes. That, yeah. Because I'm reflecting as I'm writing. I mean, that's really for me, the joy of writing is that I get to do a deep dive into this character and what the character is going through and, um, and have these thoughts and feelings. And then I then try to put them, you know, in, into the, into the novel um, so that I can share that with readers. And that's really, for me, what it's about is, is saying, hey, this is what I noticed about this character who's going through, you know, this experience. Here are my thoughts. And I'm I'm conveying them to you through my character and what she's thinking and feeling. 
the screams that follow the second round of shots stop, their echoes bouncing off the walls and the sky-high ceiling before yielding to silence. I hear movement at the far end, the one that leads to a door with a sign, employees only. A young woman is on her hands and knees, her face taut, hair spilling over her eyes. She wears a brown and white uniform. She crawls across the floor, sees me, and stops, leaning back on her heels. She puts her hands in the air and whimpers. I realize then that I am in plain clothes, that I'm holding a gun, that it's pointed in her direction. I release my left hand and pull the edge of my jacket away from my waist so she can see my ID, and she seems to understand. She slowly rises, pointing to the place where the gun fired and the screams echoed, and I nod. Then she swipes a key card and opens the door. I expect her to slip inside and lock it behind her, but she waits, waving to people I don't see until they emerge from hiding in the aisles on either side of mine. She waits for them to follow, leading them to safety. She waits until there are no more, not one left behind. So what did you, what did you think about the audio performance? Like when you're writing, are, do you hear the story or do you read it out loud to yourself at all? Like is the oral storytelling part, part of you or, or not? I do sometimes read aloud. Not, not usually. Sometimes I just find myself doing it, but I also write for Audible and I write fully scripted pieces for them. So when I'm writing those, I'm very aware of how it will be read and listened to. When I'm writing a novel, I don't really think about it, to be honest. I think about how it will be consumed on a page or, you know, uh, screen. But they do send me um, sample voices for people they're considering for um, for the audiobook. And Peter and Gabra were just hands down the right fit for these characters. And Gabra really captures Elise's grittiness. You know, she gets kind of badass in, in the book and tough. And she's also going through trauma. So she's very, you know, fierce. And that required a certain, a certain type of voice and performance quality, I think, to kind of get across the urgency in her voice. That urgency or fierceness. Yeah, I thought she nailed it. I don't know how you did this, but there were a couple of times where I got it. I understood why she was doing what she was doing. And then there were a couple other times where I was like, don't, don't do this. Like, don't, I don't, don't do that. Yeah. Right. Like, I think uh, you're toying with your readers' emotions a little bit. And the audio version, just that urgency or fierceness. Yeah. I thought she nailed it. Yeah. She was great. And, and Peter really needed to be, because we don't know, um, you know, he's narrating this sort of secondary point of view that comes in every few chapters and that, and we don't know who's, who's speaking, who's telling us that story until the end of the book. And so he needed to be very neutral and not have a ton of personality, but just sort of be factual. Um, and I wrote it that way. I mean, there are little pops where he'll say something a little off color that, okay, this is a person with a personality, but it couldn't be too strong because I didn't want people guessing. And I didn't want people that, you know, trying to match the voice with the, with the personalities in the other narration. So yeah, it was really tricky to find the right person for that. I mean, they both did an amazing job. They really did. And I, it's so funny that you bring that up because that you didn't want people to guess. I literally, I remember at the point where I had an idea and I had to like go back and read a couple of those and be like, wait, is that, 
So I don't know how you plotted that out to make that so successful. Oh, it was hard. I thought it was extremely successful. I loved it. Loved it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. You do bring, there is some elemental trauma and recovery insight in here. Yes. Yes. So how important is it for you to, to stay true to that? So that is not fiction, right? Yeah, no, it's very, it's very important. And again, with all of my books, I do a lot of research on the psychological, you know, issue that I'm trying to sort of grapple with or that I think my characters are experiencing. So in this case, it's trauma recovery. And, you know, there are, you know, some people say five stages, some people say seven, but there are stages and not everyone goes through every one of them and not everyone will experience them the same way, but they are stages that are, you know, really the process of taking this, this, this event that's happened and being able to slowly move it back to the recesses of our mind. So we can get up and like, as you know, we were talking about before, go through daily life without, you know, having this constant fear. And, and what is, I think what's so interesting is there's so many books and podcasts out now about trauma and about how to alleviate anxiety and PTSD over trauma and this connection between the thinking brain and the feeling brain the emotional part of the brain. And they are two different parts of the brain. There is a ton of science out there. And I, I feel like there's almost this obsession now with people understanding how their minds work. Why does it bother me when you know, my mother says this to me, or why does it bother me when I smell flowers? And then being able to look at the breadcrumbs and trace it back to something that happened in the past. And so really trauma recovery is, it's an active process. You have to actively go do these things so that you can reach your emotional brain, which is really primitive. And it doesn't like to be told what to do by the thinking brain. It does not like, because its purpose is to keep uh, safe. And so it's, it, you know, if you touch a hot stove, your emotional brain is like pain, danger. Okay. Got it. And that's it. It's very primitive. So anytime you go by a stove, your emotional brain is like, yep, we know what that is. Stay away. No cooking for you. You know, Uber eats or whatever you're not. cooking, <laughs> And your thinking brain is like, wait, why can't I go near this stove? Why do I have anxiety cooking? You know, I mean, that's a, obviously a, a, you know, a very small kind of example, but that's how it works. And so the process of being able to reach into your emotional brain and say, okay, we get it. You know, you're keeping us safe. But not all stoves are hot. We've learned our lesson. We won't touch the hot stove again. It's good. We can actually, there are ways to contain this danger, you know, but you can't just say that to yourself because the emotional brain does not listen. You have to find back doors to go in. You have to, and there are all these techniques that are so fascinating about bringing the memory back with all of the pieces, the emotional piece and the factual piece, and then talking it down from there and, and, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, all of that are techniques to sort of basically go through trauma recovery, even if it's such a a small thing as having touched a hot stove. So, um, yeah. So when I was reading all of that, I found it so incredibly fascinating I can tell. Yeah. 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 I know. I, ever, I, I never know when I'm boring people. I'm like, okay, just tell me to be. Not at all. But I think it is, you can tell that it's something that you're passionate about. Yeah. Because it affects all of us every day. Right. And I think people think they can put a pause button on it. Yes. 
yeah, I think people think, well, I, I'll deal with that later, right? And there's a way to like put a pause button on it. But actually, um, even though the world is spinning and continuing on, you haven't paused it. Yes. You are still experiencing yes. negative effects if you haven't got if you haven't allowed yourself to go through recovery. So she has dedicated her whole life. I think we learned that very early in the book. This is her life's work, what she does. And she's exceptional at it. And she becomes an educator in this field, right? She teaches an online course. And I wondered, as I was reading it, I was like, wow, this is really detailed. I wonder if this author has taken this kind of coursework, right? And then, of course, I look up and I, I read your bio and I realized that you while this main character has done this one thing her whole life, this is what her driving force has been. This has been her dream. This is what she executes in her life. That is not the case with you. That you have had a really wandering path to to where to where we're meeting you today, right? Yeah, I think um have reinvented myself over the years. It, you know, starting with when I was a competitive figure skater many years ago. And, um, you know, I think what happens is when you have a big dream like that, when you're very young and then it doesn't come true. Um, I would think I was 16 when I quit skating, you know, something, I don't know, it does a, a couple of different things, but it's, it, I definitely am a dream chaser, but I also am very cautious. So a lot of the things I've done have been very set paths to, uh, you know, security success and security, uh, in, in my career. And when I, when I had my first child, I stepped away from that a little bit and, and just felt this overwhelming desire to be with my children as much as humanly possible for me. Not, I mean, look, I, I have, I think there are so many ways to structure a family with work and, and home balance and all of that. Right. But for me, I needed it. I wanted it. I wanted to be with my kids and be the primary caregiver. So I started thinking about careers and that's really how I stumbled on writing. But I, I think that storytelling and writing was always in me. And it just was, you know, really this experience when I was younger and also my family's, my family history, you know, a sort of American dream family, um, European immigrants, my parents were the first generation born here. My siblings and myself were the first to go to college, except for, I think, one aunt. So we really, it was just in us. And nobody said, don't be a writer, but it was just in us, you know, to to look for these paths um, that were more certain. And so, yeah, it took me a while to, but all, I think all the changes were the results of this internal struggle with wanting certainty but then having these big dreams that were not necessarily, you know, on a steady path. And I mean, I wake up some days thinking, what am I doing? This is the dumbest thing I could have done to have a career in the arts because it is difficult. You're, you know, you're, there's no, um, there's no resting on, on laurels or anything. I mean, you can, you definitely can build an audience and build your career, but um, you, you know, it's nothing set in stone in the arts. No. I love what you just said about having, you know, f- having to find a balance between like, I clearly come from this background of dream big, anything's possible, but we have to temper that with stability yes, and security and raising children. And, uh, but I think as I was reading about you, I was like, you just kept taking risks though, and building on you know, whatever dream it was that didn't work out, 
it's just like, it's felt like to me repeatedly, you had taken the pieces of that and built a new foundation. Yeah. I've tried to bat, tried to like take the things and say, okay, this is what's working um, and try to step on that and then reach a little bit higher. But, you know, sometimes just swinging for the fences. And when I, when I switched genres into writing thrillers, the first one was all is not forgotten. And I just really swung for the fences with that book. I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I did research on the genre and then it realized it was the perfect fit for me. And I absolutely love the thriller community. I love the writers that write in this space. And, and I really have found a joy um, that I, you know, am finally after, I mean, I guess I've been writing full time for eight years. Wow. And I'm finally allowing myself to say, okay, I do really love this and I do want to keep it going. Um, but it took me a long time to let go of the fear of losing it and knowing it took me so long to establish a career as a writer. Um, it's a very powerful thing to know how hard it was and how easily it could sort of slip away. So, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, that's a balance too, right? Living with hope and fear all at the same time. Yeah. Was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Um, so yeah, a little bit about, about the tall man, Wade, and, you know, people sort of ask about his psychology and why, what happens to him in that store. And, you know, I could have spent tons of page space, um, going into his history more than I was able to, to keep the plot moving. But yeah, that was the other side of the trauma. So Elise, you know, was hailed a hero, but he was not so much. His behavior in the store was was cowardly and but not just cowardly, but it was, well, I don't want to give anything away, but it wasn't great. Let's just say that. So he found out what was inside of him, but he went into that store fractured. And when he left, he was broken. And there is a lot of psychology, um, why, you know, that that sort of sociopathic turn that he takes and he was sort of all, always teetering on it. But, um, a lot of sociopathic illnesses have to do with ego and self-perception and how he behaved in that store and what transpired. That was the break that made him create this sort of other persona for himself and to behave in a certain way. Um, because, you know, sort of just looking at himself and who he was and how he felt about himself was, became too painful. So there's a whole psychology about him. And then the, the, rescue worship as well, which is another phenomenon in a trauma situation like this, um, which I think is fascinating. And I was only able to brush on it, but that's in there. So if you haven't read it or listened to it, you can watch for this. So, you know, there's when, uh, as we were talking about how people struggle after a trauma to put it in, in a place where they can live with it. And one way that people do that is if they are rescued, um, they can believe that this person who rescued them was meant to be in their lives. Yeah, that that intersection was faded, yes. Faded, and by the universe or God or whatever you believe in. And so for uh, him, feeling that that he and Elise were just meant to be together, and it's unclear if it's romantic or just connected or just on the same path, but he needs to take her from her life and bring her into his world and that becomes essential for him to to grapple with the fact that this event happened and it's a way of being able to convince yourself that it won't happen again because it wasn't random it it wasn't just you know something that can happen in life it was meant to be 
for this purpose. So he has to pursue that. He has to pursue her. Yes. It's his way of dealing with uncertainty. Is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so when I researched rescue worship, I thought, wow, this fits in perfectly with this plot. And so I built his entire sort of backstory and his personality um, are sort of constructed with that support beneath them. Because I think that's really important too, when you have a villain in a story, um, is to really support their psychology with real impacts. Truths. Yes. Truths. Truths from life. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it even more thrilling. (laughs) Well, good. Right? Because it's not just some, an anomaly that an author just invented, right? No, no, it's rooted. It's rooted in some truth. Yeah, I think revealing bits of his backstory and humanizing his story adds to the, the thrill of the whole plot unfolding. Yeah, I do too. So I'm glad you feel the same way. <laughs> it's very funny how every now and then I come across an author that I realize like, oh, you really understand or you're really working to understand the human condition. Yes, that is my that is my goal with every book. It's what I'm interested in. It's what I'm interested in writing. And I build plots around that interest to explore these things I, I want to to explore about about the human experience. Yeah. I mean, you even, this is not a romance, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of elements of that in relationship. Yes, there is. But you have another whole layer of her experience that's happening with her spouse around lies, secrets, betrayal. Yes. Yes. And that was, that was another thing that was really important. And, um, you know, I know for some people it's difficult to like her or accept her choice to stay in a marriage where her husband had this very brief affair. And so, yeah, I, I actually wasn't planning to make her marriage sort of fractured and glued back together, but I was writing a scene with her and her husband and, and I needed it to be tense and I needed her to feel disconnected from him. And I just, all of a sudden I thought this has to be, and I started writing that into the conversation where he says, you know, well, it's like four years ago or something. And I thought, oh, okay, I guess I guess something bad happened. Um, and then I thought, okay, I, I have to write this in and weave it into the plot. And it becomes essential to the plot. And also understanding why she doesn't turn to him um, for help because she doesn't fully trust him. Their bond was broken and it can't withstand uh, what it, she is going through now, especially when his reaction is to not see her. So even though she's not necessarily showing him or telling him what's going on in her mind, the fact that, you know, her husband, her most intimate partner in life, can't see it in her eyes, on her face, that they can't feel it is, is really disconcerting to her. And, you know, if I was able to write more about her, because, you know, if it was, there was more sp- page space, you know, that you could go into how there is resentment when we feel that we're not seen and when we have to constantly explain ourselves to people that we share a home with, a bed with. It disconnects us. It disconnects us, yeah. Yeah, like, why do I need to explain this to you? You know, he should know her. He should know that she can't live with uncertainty. He should be able to take those few steps back and say, okay, this is probably what's going on in her mind, why she can't sleep, why she's so agitated. And he doesn't, he just keeps saying what's wrong. He's not present enough. Yeah. Yeah. He just, and he's not thinking and he's not, 
He's not observing her. And it's really, you know, if you think about relationships and the, the compromises that we, we all make to be in relationships, because no one person is going to give us everything that we need. And so the question is, what do what are the most important things? And for her, there are things that, that she gets from the marriage um, and the way that she feels about her husband that are have been enough. And, um, you know, the book sort of leaves, leaves it a little... I won't say, but anyway, um, but yeah, it's definitely tested um, and it's definitely not enough uh, for what she's going through. Yes. It gives the reader an understanding for why she's not sharing more with him. It, it, it explains her, her closed behavior in that intimate relationship. And so, yeah, I think it's funny. I think that's like the third or fourth time you've said something about like, if I had more space on the page and if I had more... I know. Right. Because I think what's really fascinating is that for you, it is a whole person and everyone connected has also all this other backstory and all this other, like you have to decide how much of this world your imagination can see you're going to edit down Yes, to tell the most concise, most compelling story. Yes. And it's, it is always a struggle to balance, you know, the things that I want to include about the characters with the propulsive action that, you know, that I'm also trying to create. And it's a, I, I recognize that it's a really big ask of a reader that you've thrown into this chaos and they just want to know what happens. You, you've created the anxiety in them. And now you're asking them to slow down and hear about a, a childhood story so they can have more empathy for your character. And that's a big ask in a thriller. Well, this, I thought I might be the kind of reader that wants that little, I want these little side elements. And that actually draws me further in, doesn't rush me through. Good. Yeah. I want to savor it. I want to live with these characters for longer. I want to be with them and feel what they're feeling because there's something cathartic about it, right? Being immersed in their emotional turmoil, as well as the circumstances that I've put them in. Um, for me, that it, that's what I love about, about reading in general. I've been doing this podcast now for like two years, and I named the podcast Desideratum, which is a, a Latin word that means something that's essential. My parents, when I was growing up, had a poem that they hung on the wall called Desiderata, and it was just full of really lovely life lessons. The line that I think I've repeated the most often to my children is, do not compare yourself to others or you will become vain or bitter for always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. But anyway, so when I was thinking about the podcast and what I wanted to contribute to the enormous podcast space, one of the things I wanted to be able to do was to talk to people about what's essential, right? Yes. And so... I wanted I wanted to ask you for you and you can answer as a dreamer a writer okay. in any capacity you want for you if someone says you know what do you think is essential how do you answer Oh my gosh um wow what is essential I mean I guess you know for me when I wake up in the morning the first thing I do is check on my kids cuz they're all young adults and out in the world so that's through my phone. I'm like, okay, no news is good news. It's first thing that the kids, my kids are all right. Yeah. And, but after that, I think what is essential 
is being true to who you are. Um, and I've, you know, I've lived a lot of different in a lot of different careers and I've lived a lot of different lives in a way. And I feel like now I am living in a place um, that is my most authentic self. Oh. Um, and, you know, I look at the friendships that I, ha- that I've cultivated, they are really close friendships, um, with people that, uh, I can say most things to hide the least, keep, keep, keep the fewest secrets. Yes. Right. Yeah. Be the most yourself, uh, not just a version or, or a portion. Exactly. And I try to keep it real with my kids. And it's been interesting going from the mom of younger kids. I'm sure you can relate to this to slowly letting them see pieces of me that I didn't necessarily show them before. Yeah. And uh, a more complex human being than just mom. And, and it's um, interesting to build that the relationship with them as adults. Uh, And, and again, that's about authenticity. It's just 100% um, of my joy comes from being in the presence of people where I can be authentic. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, the least amount of hiding possible creates happiness. It allows us to really connect. And yeah, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about, you know, some of the the incredible friends I've made in the writing community and, uh, and the way that we can reconnect in a split second, even if years have gone by, people I see at conferences, and the people I talk to every day, um, the, you know, the joy that I feel when I see something in them that is true and that I can express to them, um, you know, these things I love about them. And when they do that back and it's real, you know, when I see or hear them say things about me that they appreciate and they're, they're, and they're true and I feel seen and validated that that experience to me is one of the most meaningful experiences that we can have as, as human beings. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Wendy Walker as much as I did. And I hope you can't wait to hear the audiobook for What Remains. So as promised, here is the code from Blackstone Publishing for a discounted listen. Go to downpour.com Select the audiobook, What Remains, by Wendy Walker. Click Buy Now and apply the promo code BLACKSTONE50 for 50% off the audiobook. That's BLACKSTONE50, all one word. Thanks again to Blackstone, Positron, and Wendy Walker. I'm Teresa Bakken. Thank you for listening. <laughs>